Part Three, Chapter Five of Basil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piper Hayes. Basil by Wilkie Collins. Part Three, Chapter Five. Mannion. I had never suspected that the note shown to me at North Villa might have come from him, and yet the secrecy with which it had been delivered, the person to whom it was addressed, the mystery connected with it even in the servant's eyes, all pointed to the discovery which I had so incomprehensibly failed to make. I had suffered a letter, which might contain written proof of her guilt, to be taken, from under my own eyes, to Margaret Sherwin. How had my perceptions become thus strangely blinded? The confusion of my memory, the listless incapacity of all my faculties, answered the question but too readily of themselves. Robert Mannion. I could not take my eyes from that name. I still held before me the crowded, closely written lines of his writing, and delayed to read them. Something of the horror which the presence of the man himself would have inspired in me was produced by the mere sight of his letter, and that letter addressed to me. The vengeance which my own hands had wreaked on him he was, of all men, the surest to repay. Perhaps in these lines the dark future through which his way and mine might lie would be already shadowed forth. Margaret, too, could he write so much and not write of her? not disclose the mystery in which the motives of her crime were still hidden i turned back again to the first page and resolved to read the letter it began abruptly in the following terms st helen's hospital you may look at the signature when you receive this and may be tempted to tear up my letter and throw it from you unread i warn you to read what i have written and to estimate if you can its importance to yourself destroy these pages afterwards if you like they will have served their purpose do you know where i am and what i suffer i am one of the patients of this hospital hideously mutilated for life by your hand if i could have known certainly the day of my dismissal i should have waited to tell you with my own lips what i now write but i am ignorant of this at the very point of recovery i have suffered a relapse you will silence any uneasy upbraidings of conscience should you feel them by saying that i have deserved death at your hands i will tell you in answer what you deserve and shall receive at mine but i will first assume that it was knowledge of your wife's guilt which prompted your attack on me i am well aware that she has declared herself innocent and that her father supports her declaration by the time you receive this letter my injuries oblige me to allow myself a whole fortnight to write it in i shall have taken measures which render further concealment unnecessary therefore if my confession avail you aught you have it here she is guilty willingly guilty remember whatever she may say to the contrary you may believe this and believe all i write hereafter deception between us two is at an end i have told you margaret sherwin is guilty why was she guilty what was the secret of my influence over her to make you comprehend what i have now to communicate it is necessary for me to speak of myself and of my early life to-morrow i will undertake this disclosure to-day i can neither hold the pen nor see the paper any longer 
if you could look at my face where i am now laid you would know why when we met for the first time at north villa i had not been five minutes in your presence before i detected your curiosity to know something about me and perceived that you doubted from the first whether i was born and bred for such a situation as i held under mr sherwin failing as i knew you would fail to gain any information about me from my employer or his family you tried at various times to draw me into familiarity to get me to talk unreservedly to you and only gave up the attempt to penetrate my secret whatever it might be when we parted after our interview at my house on the night of the storm on that night i determined to balk your curiosity and yet to gain your confidence and i succeeded you little thought when you bade me farewell at my own door that you had given your hand and your friendship to a man who long before you met with margaret sherwin had inherited the right to be the enemy of your father and of every descendant of your father's house does this declaration surprise you read on and you will understand it i am the son of a gentleman my father's means were miserably limited and his family was not an old family like yours nevertheless he was a gentleman in anybody's sense of the word he knew it and that knowledge was his ruin he was a weak kind careless man a worshipper of conventionalities and a great respecter of the wide gaps which lay between social stations in his time thus he determined to live like a gentleman by following a gentleman's pursuit a profession as distinguished from a trade failing in this he failed to follow out his principle and starve like a gentleman he died the death of a felon leaving me no inheritance but the name of a felon's son while still a young man he contrived to be introduced to a gentleman of great family great position and great wealth he interested or fancied he interested this gentleman and always looked on him as the patron who was to make his fortune by getting him the first government sinecure they were plenty enough in those days which might fall vacant in firm and foolish expectation of this he lived far beyond his little professional income lived among rich people without the courage to make use of them as a poor man it was the old story debts and liabilities of all kinds pressed heavy on him creditors refused to wait exposure and utter ruin threatened him and the prospect of the sinecure was still as far off as ever nevertheless he believed in the advent of this office and all the more resolutely now because he looked to it as his salvation he was quite confident of the interest of his patron and of its speedy exertion in his behalf perhaps that gentleman had overrated his own political influence perhaps my father had been too sanguine and had misinterpreted polite general promises into special engagements however it was the bailiffs came into his house one morning while help from a government situation or any situation was as unattainable as ever came to take him to prison to seize everything in execution even to the very bed on which my mother then seriously ill was lying 
the whole fabric of false prosperity which he had been building up to make the world respect him was menaced with instant and shameful overthrow he had not the courage to let it go so he took refuge from misfortune in a crime he forged a bond to prop up his credit for a little time longer the name he made use of was the name of his patron in doing this he believed as all men who commit crime believe that he had the best possible chance of escaping consequences in the first place he might get the long-expected situation in time to repay the amount of the bond before detection in the second place he had almost the certainty of a legacy from a rich relative old and in ill health whose death might be fairly expected from day to day if both these prospects failed and they did fail there was still a third chance the chance that his rich patron would rather pay the money than appear against him in those days they hung for forgery my father believed it to be impossible that a man at whose table he had sat whose relatives and friends he had amused and instructed by his talents would be the man to give evidence which should condemn him to be hanged on the public scaffold he was wrong the wealthy patron held strict principles of honor which made no allowance for temptations and weaknesses and was moreover influenced by high-flown notions of his responsibilities as a legislator he was a member of parliament to the laws of his country he appeared accordingly and gave evidence against the prisoner who was found guilty and left for execution then when it was too late this man of pitiless honor thought himself at last justified in leaning to the side of mercy and employed his utmost interest in every direction to obtain a mitigation of the sentence to transportation for life the application failed even a reprieve of a few days was denied at the appointed time my father died on the scaffold by the hangman's hand have you suspected while reading this part of my letter who the high-born gentleman was whose evidence hung him if you have not i will tell you that gentleman was your father you will now wonder no longer how i could have inherited the right to be his enemy and the enemy of all who are of his blood the shock of her husband's horrible death deprived my mother of reason she lived a few months after his execution but never recovered her faculties i was their only child and was left penniless to begin life as the son of a father who had been hanged and of a mother who had died in a public madhouse more of myself to-morrow my letter will be a long one i must pause often over it as i pause to-day well i started in life with a hangman's mark on me with the parent's shame for the son's reputation wherever i went whatever friends i kept whatever acquaintances i made people knew how my father had died and showed that they knew it not so much by shunning or staring at me vile as human nature is there were not many who did that as by insulting me with overacted sympathy and elaborate anxiety to sham entire ignorance of my father's fate the gallows brand was on my forehead but they were too benevolently blind to see it the gallows infamy was my inheritance but they were too resolutely generous to discover it this was hard to bear however i was strong-hearted even then when my sensations were quick and my sympathies young 
so I bore it. My only weakness was my father's weakness, the notion that I was born to a station ready-made for me, and that the great use of my life was to live up to it. My station. I battled for that with the world for years and years, before I discovered that the highest of all stations is the station a man makes for himself, and the lowest the station that is made for him by others. At starting in life your father wrote to make me offers of assistance. Assistance, after he had ruined me. Assistance to the child from the hands which had tied the rope round the parent's neck. I sent him back his letter. He knew that I was his enemy, his son's enemy, and his son's son's enemy. As long as I lived, I never heard from him again. Trusting boldly to myself to carve out my own way, and to live down my undeserved ignominy, resolving in the pride of my integrity to combat openly and fairly with misfortune, I shrank at first from disowning my parentage and abandoning my father's name, standing on my own character, confiding in my intellect and my perseverance. I tried pursuit after pursuit, and was beaten afresh at every new effort. Whichever way I turned, the gallows still rose as the same immovable obstacle between me and fortune, between me and station, between me and my fellow men. I was morbidly sensitive on this point. The slightest references to my father's fate, however remote or accidental, curdled my blood. I saw open insult or humiliating compassion or forced forbearance in the look and manner of every man about me. So I broke off with old friends, and tried new, and in seeking fresh pursuits sought fresh connections, where my father's infamy might be unknown. Wherever I went, the old stain always broke out afresh, just at the moment when I had deceived myself into the belief that it was utterly effaced. I had a warm heart then, it was some time before it turned to stone and felt nothing those were the days when failure and humiliation could still draw tears from me that epoch in my life is marked in my memory as the epoch when i could weep at last i gave way before difficulty and conceded the first step to the calamity which had stood front to front with me so long i left the neighborhood where i was known and assumed the name of a schoolfellow who had died. For some time this succeeded, but the curse of my father's death followed me, though I saw it not. After various employments, still, mind, the employments of a gentleman, had first supported, then failed me, I became an usher at a school. It was there that my false name was detected, and my identity discovered again, I never knew through whom. The exposure was effected by some enemy, anonymously. For several days I thought everybody in the school treated me in an altered way. The cause came out, first in whispers, then in reckless jests, while I was taking care of the boys in the playground. In the fury of the moment I struck one of the most insolent, and the eldest of them, and heard him rather seriously. The parents heard of it, and threatened me with prosecution. The whole neighborhood was aroused. I had to leave my situation secretly, by night, or the mob would have pelted the felon's son out of the parish. I went back to London, bearing another assumed name, and tried, as a last resource, to save me from starvation, the resource of writing. 
I served my apprenticeship to literature as a hack author of the lowest degree. Knowing I had talents which might be turned to account, I tried to vindicate them by writing an original work. But my experience of the world had made me unfit to dress my thoughts in popular costume. I could only tell bitter truths bitterly. I exposed licensed hypocrisies too openly. I saw the vicious side of many respectabilities, and said I saw it. In short, I called things by their right names, and no publisher would treat with me. So I stuck to my low-task work, my penny-aligning in third-class newspapers, my translating from Frenchmen and Germans, and plagiarizing from dead authors, to supply the raw material for bookmongering by more accomplished bookmongers than I. In this life there was one advantage which compensated for much misery and meanness and bitter, biting disappointment. I could keep my identity securely concealed. Character was of no consequence to me. Nobody cared to know who I was, or to inquire what I had been. The gallows mark was smoothed out at last. While I was living thus on the offal of literature, I met with a woman of good birth and fair fortune, whose sympathies or whose curiosity I happened to interest. She and her father and mother received me favorably as a gentleman who had known better days, and an author whom the public had undeservedly neglected. How I managed to gain their confidence and esteem without alluding to my parentage, it is not worth while to stop to describe. That I did so you will easily imagine when I tell you that the woman to whom I refer consented, with her father's full approval, to become my wife. The very day of the marriage was fixed. I believed I had successfully parried all perilous inquiries, but I was wrong. A relation of the family, whom I had never seen, came to town a short time before the wedding. We disliked each other on our first introduction. He was a clever, resolute man of the world, and privately inquired about me to much better purpose in a few days than his family had done in several months. Accident favored him strangely. Everything was discovered, literally everything, and I was contemptuously dismissed the house. Could a lady of respectability marry a man, no matter how worthy in her eyes, whose father had been hanged, whose mother had died in a madhouse, who had lived under assumed names, who had been driven from an excellent country neighborhood for cruelty to a harmless schoolboy? Impossible. With this event, my long strife and struggle with the world ended. My eyes opened to a new view of life, and the purpose of life, my first aspirations to live up to my birthright position, in spite of adversity and dishonor, to make my name sweet enough in men's nostrils, to cleanse away the infamy on my father's, were now no more. The ambition which, whether I was a hack author, a traveling portrait painter, or an usher at a school, had once whispered to me, Low down as you are in dark, miry ways, you are on the path which leads upward to high places, in the sunshine afar off. You are not working to scrape together wealth for another man. You are independent, self-reliant, laboring in your own cause. The daring ambition which had once counseled thus sank dead within me at last. The strong, stern spirit was beaten by spirits stronger and sterner yet, infamy and want. I wrote to a man of character and wealth, 
one of my friends of early days who had ceased to hold communication with me like other friends but unlike them had given me up in genuine sorrow i wrote and asked him to meet me privately by night i was too ragged to go to his house too sensitive still even if i had gone and had been admitted to risk encountering people there who either knew my father or knew how he had died i wished to speak to my former friend unseen and made the appointment accordingly he kept it when we met i said to him i have a last favor to ask of you when we parted years ago i had high hopes and brave resolutions both are worn out i then believed that i could not only rise superior to my misfortune but could make that very misfortune the motive of my rise you told me i was too quick of temper too morbidly sensitive about the slightest reference to my father's death too fierce and changeable under undeserved trial and disappointment this might have been true then but i am altered now pride and ambition have been persecuted and starved out of me an obscure monotonous life in which thought and spirit may be laid asleep never to wake again is the only life i care for help me to lead it i ask you first as a beggar to give me from your superfluity apparel decent enough to bear the daylight i ask you next to help me to some occupation which will just give me my bread my shelter and my hour or two of solitude in the evening you have plenty of influence to do this and you know i am honest you cannot choose me too humble and obscure an employment let me descend low enough to be lost to sight beneath the world i have lived in let me go among people who want to know that i work honestly for them and want to know nothing more get me a mean hiding-place to conceal myself and my history in for ever and then neither attempt to see me nor communicate with me again if former friends chance to ask after me tell them i am dead or gone into another country the wisest life is the life the animals lead i want like them to serve my master for food shelter and liberty to lie asleep now and then in the sunshine without being driven away as a pest or a trespasser do you believe in this resolution it is my last he did believe in it and he granted what i asked through his interference and recommendation i entered the service of mr sherwin i must stop here for to-day to-morrow i shall come to disclosures of vital interest to you have you been surprised that i your enemy by every cause of enmity that one man can have against another should write to you so fully about the secrets of my early life i have done so because i wished the strife between us to be an open strife on my side because i desire that you should know thoroughly what you have to expect from my character after such a life as i have led there was purpose in my deceit when i deceived you there is purpose in my frankness when i now tell you all i began in mr sherwin's employment as the lowest clerk in his office both the master and the men looked a little suspiciously on me at first my account of myself was always the same simple and credible i had entered the counting-house with the best possible recommendation and i acted up to it these circumstances in my favor joined to a manner that never varied and to a steadiness at my work that never relaxed soon produced their effect all curiosity about me gradually died away i was left to pursue my avocations in peace 
the friend who had got me my situation preserved my secret as i had desired him of all the people whom i had formerly known pitiless enemies and lukewarm adherents not one ever suspected that my hiding-place was the back office of a linen-draper's shop for the first time in my life i felt that the secret of my father's misfortune was mine and mine only that my security from exposure was at length complete before long i rose to the chief place in the counting-house it was no very difficult matter for me to discover that my new master's character had other elements besides that of the highest respectability in plain terms i found him to be a pretty equal compound by nature of the fool the tyrant and the coward there was only one direction in which what grovelling sympathies he had could be touched to some purpose save him waste or get him profit and he was really grateful i succeeded in working both these marvels his managing man cheated him i found it out refused to be bribed to collusion and exposed the fraud to mr sherwin this got me his confidence and the place of chief clerk in that position i discovered a means which had never occurred to my employer of greatly enlarging his business and its profits with the least possible risk he tried my plan and it succeeded this gained me his warmest admiration an increase of salary and a firm footing in his family circle my projects were more than fulfilled i had money enough and leisure enough and spent my obscure existence exactly as i had proposed but my life was still not destined to be altogether devoid of an animating purpose when i first knew margaret sherwin she was just changing from childhood to girlhood i marked the promise of future beauty in her face and figure and secretly formed the resolution which you afterwards came forward to thwart but which i have executed and will execute in spite of you the thoughts out of which that resolution sprang counselled me more calmly than you can suppose i said within myself the best years of my life have been irrevocably wasted misery and humiliation and disaster have followed my steps from my youth of all the pleasant draughts which other men drink to sweeten existence not one has passed my lips i will know happiness before i die and this girl shall confer it she shall grow up to maturity for me i will imperceptibly gain such a hold on her affections while they are yet young and impressible that when the time comes and i speak the word though my years more than double hers though i am dependent on her father for the bread i eat though parent's voice and lover's voice unite to call her back she shall still come to my side and of her own free will put her hand in mine and follow me wherever i go my wife my mistress my servant which i choose this was my project to execute it time and opportunity were mine and i steadily and wearily made use of them hour by hour day by day year by year from first to last the girl's father never suspected me besides the security which he felt in my age he had judged me by his own small commercial standard and had found me a model of integrity a man who had saved him from being cheated who had so enlarged and consolidated his business as to place him among the top dignitaries of the trade who was the first to come to the desk in the morning and the last to remain there in the evening 
who had not only never demanded but had absolutely refused to take a single holiday such a man as this was morally and intellectually a man in ten thousand a man to be admired and trusted in every relation of life his confidence in me knew no bounds he was uneasy if i was not by to advise him in the simplest matters my ears were the first to which he confided his insane ambition on the subject of his daughter his anxiety to see her marry above her station his stupid resolution to give her the false flippant fashionable education which she subsequently received i thwarted his plans in nothing openly counteracted them in everything secretly the more i strengthened my sources of influence over margaret the more pleased he was he was delighted to hear her constantly referring to me about her home lessons to see her coming to me evening after evening to learn new occupations and amusements he suspected i had been a gentleman he had been told i spoke pure english he felt sure i had received a first-rate education i was nearly as good for margaret as good society itself when she grew older and went to the fashionable school as her father had declared she should my offer to keep up her lessons in the holidays and to examine what progress she had made when she came home regularly every fortnight for the sunday was accepted with greedy readiness and acknowledged with servile gratitude at this time mr sherwin's own estimate of me among his friends was that he had got me for half nothing and that i was worth more to him than a thousand a year but there was one member of the family who suspected my intentions from the first mrs sherwin the weak timid sickly woman whose opinion nobody regarded whose character nobody understood mrs sherwin of all those who dwelt in the house or came to the house was the only one whose looks words and manner kept me constantly on my guard the very first time we saw each other that woman doubted me as i doubted her and for ever afterwards when we met she was on the watch this mutual distrust this antagonism of our two natures never openly proclaimed itself and never wore away my chance of security lay not so much in my own caution and my perfect command of look and action under all emergencies as in the self-distrust and timidity of her nature in the helpless inferiority of position to which her husband's want of affection and her daughter's want of respect condemned her in her own house and in the influence of repulsion at times even of absolute terror which my presence had the power of communicating to her suspecting what i am assured she suspected incapable as she was of rendering her suspicions certainties knowing beforehand as she must have known that no word she could speak would gain the smallest respect or credit from her husband or her child that woman's life while i was at north villa must have been a life of the direst mental suffering to which any human being was ever condemned as time passed and margaret grew older her beauty both of face and form approached nearer to perfection than i had foreseen closely as i watched her but neither her mind nor her disposition kept pace with her beauty i studied her closely with the same patient penetrating observation which my experience of the world has made it a habit with me to direct on every one with whom i am brought in contact i studied her i say intently 
and found her worthy of nothing not even of the slave destiny which i had in store for her she had neither heart nor mind in the higher sense of those words she had simply instincts most of the bad instincts of an animal none of the good the great motive power which really directed her was deceit i never met with any human being so inherently disingenuous so naturally incapable of candor even in the most trifling affairs of life as she was the best training could never have wholly overcome this vice in her the education she actually got an education under false pretenses encouraged it everybody has read some people have known of young girls who have committed the most extraordinary impostures or sustained the most infamous false accusations their chief motive being often the sheer enjoyment of practising deceit of such characters was the character of margaret sherwin she had strong passions but not their frequent accompaniment strong will and strong intellect she had some obstinacy but no firmness appeal in the right way to her vanity and you could make her do the thing she had declared she would not do the minute after she had made the declaration as for her mind it was of the lowest schoolgirl average she had a certain knack at learning this thing and remembering that but she understood nothing fairly felt nothing deeply if i had not had my own motive in teaching her i should have shut the books again the first time she and i opened them together and have given her up as a fool all however that i discovered of bad in her character never made me pause in the prosecution of my design i had carried it too far for that before i thoroughly knew her besides what mattered her duplicity to me i could see through it her strong passions i could control them her obstinacy i could break it her poverty of intellect i cared nothing about her intellect what i wanted was youth and beauty she was young and beautiful and i was sure of her yes sure her showy person showy accomplishments and showy manners dazzled all eyes but mine of all the people about her i alone found out what she really was and in that lay the main secret of my influence over her i dreaded no rivalry her father prompted by his ambitious hopes kept most young men of her class away from the house the few who did come were not dangerous they were as incapable of inspiring as she was of feeling real love her mother still watched me and still discovered nothing still suspected me behind my back and still trembled before my face months passed on monotonously year succeeded to year and i bided my time as patiently and kept my secret as cautiously as at the first no change occurred nothing happened to weaken or alter my influence at north villa until the day arrived when margaret left school and came home for good End of part three. Chapter 5, Part 1